I think this episode's coming out just after the big uh, Barbenheimer weekend. Do you have any plans, Walter? <laughs> I'm afraid uh, I'm, I'm unable to schedule an appearance. Well, maybe we can get you there, and uh, you know, in one of the future episodes, we'll get Walter's Barbie review. Uh, that's gonna. I, I think maybe how Margot Robbie st- stacks up against all the great Barbies of the past. I think that might need a little bit more money than you're paying to get me to go to a Barbie <laughs> movie. back, everybody, to What Really Matters, brought to you by Tablet and the Hudson Institute. Every episode, we help you understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and enjoy following the story of America and the world more than you do now. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern, with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist of the Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson, and recently returned from Croatia. Is that right? That's right. How's Croatia doing these days? Well, I would say it's basking in the sun, as far as I can tell. Uh, the food is good. The weather is beautiful. Uh, it's uh, it's definitely a, a place worth seeing. Excellent. Okay. Well, maybe we'll get to that at the end in the uh, tip of the week. But right now, let's do a round of news or phone news. toss out three stories in the news cycle. And Walter, you tell us what's signal and what's noise, what headlines really matter and what listeners can safely ignore. First story for this week. As the war in Ukraine drags on and Russia continues to be cut off from the Western-led international trade and financial system, many observers are predicting that the poorer and more isolated Russia we see today will have little choice but to become an economic and political dependency of China needing ever more Chinese technology, imports, supply chains, know-how, maybe labor, and essentially handing Xi more influence and even possibly control over Russian energy, raw materials, even foreign policy. So we're talking not just about Sino-Russian cooperation here, but a possible upshot of the war being Beijing's diktat extending to the Urals. With these kinds of predictions, Walter, are we talking about news or phone news here? Well, Jeremy, this is in the category of we don't know anything now. We've got to wait and see. So uh, all the chatter about it is just that. It's chatter. You know, people in the news and the foreign policy business are a little bit like the announcers on some of the old TV shows that probably not many of my uh, listeners here remember. But back in the old days, uh, you used to have the space launches of the um, American astronauts. And these were, you know, they had really high ratings. All the networks covered them. But you'd have sort of six hours of countdown. And this is all live. And the commentators keep having to fill the air. So they fill the air with speculation, with news. And unfortunately for them, very frequently, the countdown would be on hold as they found some problem. And they had to fix it before the countdown could continue. So these poor announcers are on their live hour after hour after hour. And that's a lot of what we're seeing with something like the Ukraine war. Everybody wants to know how it's going to end. Everybody wants to know what's going to be the net result of it. But we don't know. It isn't over till it's over. And if it ends today, 
the Russia-China relationship uh, is, is not going to be a lot deeper than it currently is. If it drags on for 30 years, it could have all kinds of other consequences. Nobody knows. And anybody who tells you they know is not telling you the truth. All right. The second story. The U.S. national debt is projected to reach historic levels over the next 30 years, eventually reaching 181% of the country's total economic output. The CBO projects that by 2053, the annual deficit will hit levels not seen since World War II. Now, Walter, you're going to provide a real public service here because America's debt is really bad is the kind of headline that like, you know, it's like riots in France. Canada apologizes for not saying sorry, right? It's like I've been hearing this every week my whole life. But, you know, the bond market seems fine. The David Stockman type apocalypse scenarios never seem to come. Voters clearly don't care. So is this news or phone news? Well, it's uh, it's a mix, actually. On the one hand, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, back in the 1850s, the historian Macaulay wrote this wonderful history of England that went back to the glorious revolution of 1688 and the founding of the Bank of England. And he talks about how the founding of the Bank of England in the 17th century led to this creation of a monstrous national debt. And he goes through 150 years of punditry about how the mounting English national debt was going to be the ruin of the nation. And he shows how generation after generation, everyone is wringing their hands and moaning and groaning. And yet, as he points out, the country just, you know, keep, this is like an invalid or rather an imaginary invalid, a hypochondriac, who keeps moaning and groaning about their weakness until their, their continuing ruddy health makes their complaints ridiculous. Now, there is something to that and something to that in stories about the American national debt, which has been the ruin of the nation since the early colonial, you know, the late colonial era and continues to trouble us today. So, Yes, in one sense, all of this whining and moaning and wringing of hands is ridiculous because the terrible consequences never come. But on the other hand, you can look around the world and see a lot of countries where the debt did go way out of control and the results actually were national ruin. Currencies collapse, you get hyperinflation. The history of Argentina should be very useful reading in this respect, but more recently, countries like uh, Turkey and Iran have gone into hyperinflation. So, um, so how do we puzzle this out? I think it's because we constantly worry about the debt that the debt doesn't reach levels that totally ruin us. So that we have to look at this not so much, don't take a snapshot of any one day, but look at how this, this history unfolds from decade to decade. If we, if we didn't have deficit hawks, we actually would probably face the terrible consequences that they're worried about. But again, I would say to everybody, the main thing to look at is growth, not debt. If a company is growing, it can make sense to take on more debt to facilitate that growth. But if a company is shrinking and is borrowing money to plug holes in its balance sheet as it try or try to cover bills 
against a background of falling revenue or falling wealth, that's not so good. So we need to look at the health of the economy overall. That's a more telling indication than the absolute size of the national debt. All right, final news story for this week. The political left across Europe hasn't faced such widespread electoral losses since the 1930s. Not only Maloney at the helm in Italy, but the Finns party, the Sweden Democrats, the FPO polling well in Austria, Vox in Spain, the so-called Spartans in Greece. Of course, now the AFD winning local elections for the first time in Germany and pulling ahead of the SPD there. I mean, there's a tendency in English language press to refer to all right-wing or even sometimes center-right politics in Europe as far-right, but the political rejection of the old social democratic and even Christian democratic parties across Europe is not exactly nothing. So are we looking at the rise of the far-right in Europe, or is this your average ephemeral protest politics? Is it news or faux news? I think it's news, but again, with a a twist. it's not so much that these parties are polling high, it's that Europeans are waking up to the fact that Europe isn't working. Um, You know, Europe is, if you compare where Europe and the United States have gone since 2008, Europe has, has simply failed to match America's recovery from both the financial crisis and the COVID crisis. Um, Europeans love everything about their economic policies except the results of those economic policies. And this is, this is the trap that Europe has been in for a very long time. People keep voting for policies that don't work. Then they keep getting mad at the politicians when the policies they voted for don't bring success. So that's a, that's a tricky situation. It means that protest parties do well. But if you look at a lot of the programs of these protest parties, it's not at all clear that in a continent with slow growth, uh, uh, a demographic shrinkage due to low birth rates, um, and a completely cluttered uh, regulatory setting that makes the growth of the tech sector and other key areas of the economy virtually impossible. It's really not clear that populist protests about migration are going to solve any of the problems that people in Europe are actually facing. So I think in that sense, the protest vote is more a continuation of Europeans sticking their heads in the sand and not responding to the actual problems that are over time reducing Europe's wealth, relative wealth, reducing its power in the world, and making a lot of Europeans very unhappy. Okay, that does it for the news this week. Let's go to our next segment, The Learning Curve. episode, we draw on a blunder or big mistake from history with relevant lessons for our own time. So this week, let's start by talking about Teddy Roosevelt. So by the end of 1918, he's the undisputed favorite for the Republican nomination, and a third Roosevelt term might have been America's 
best hope for realistic engagement with Eurasia after the end of World War I. Roosevelt knows that isolationism isn't realistic or wise, but he's also skeptical, to put it very mildly, about Wilson, the 14 points, the League of Nations. But Roosevelt dies in January 1919. America loses, as you've written about, one of its most admired, eloquent leaders. And then Wilson, the post-war conferences and peace settlements, and then Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover put the U.S. on the interwar path, and we all know where that led. So other than the mistake of Roosevelt deciding to die suddenly right at the beginning of the Paris Peace Conference, what would you say is the big kind of conceptual mistake America makes about the world and its place in it in this incredible sliding doors moment in world history? And what lessons or, or maybe even parallels do you see in the last 20 to 30 years, say, of American history right up through the present day? Well, obviously, Roosevelt's big mistake was to go up the Amazon, which is where he contracted uh, fevers, et cetera, that uh, put him in, in such terrible shape. Uh, Roosevelt, I think we can also say, made a pretty big mistake when he decided not to run for re-election in 1908. He, uh, uh, he certainly would have won that race. Uh, and then uh, I think the whole political situation would have been different in 1912. But in any case, um, yeah, America got some things right and some things wrong at the end of World War I. Um, the thing we got right, I think, is actually something that both Wilson and Roosevelt agreed on, and that was the, the, the one in the 14 points that talked about self-determination for European peoples. That is, the Poles should have Poland, the Czechs and Slovaks, Czechoslovakia, the South Slavs, Yugoslavia, as it was known, etc. Um, that was really the on not only the only basis for something like a, um, a peaceful settlement of a lot of European political issues and progress in European democracy, but it was also, from the American point of view, breaking up those big European empires was a really good thing uh, because... You know, if Croatia has a problem with Slovenia, that's not necessarily a problem that draws in the United States. But if the Ottoman Empire and the Austrian Empire or the Russian Empire are about to have a war, that's a much harder quarrel for the United States to stay out of. So the idea that a Europe of small states uh, would, uh, would be potentially a less troublesome thing for the United States was, was smart. A couple of things, though, were stupid, uh, profoundly stupid. One was the idea that the League of Nations, this was Wilson's idea, could actually be a substitute for polit international politics, that somehow you could replace international politics with the rule of law. It's a beautiful dream. It's The only problem with it is that it doesn't really work. Um, International law is a very good thing as long as it doesn't go too far. And as long as you don't trust to international law uh, to solve your big problems. Uh, so that was a problem. The fact, that, again, that Wilson clearly didn't have the political backing at home for the League of Nations, but refused to modify his stand that made things worse. Uh, the failure of Republicans like Lodge to come up with a really constructive alternative 
uh, to Wilson's policies was also a problem. None of the leaders of American politics were really isolationist in 1918, 1919, except for a few folks like William Bora. Uh, but the failure of the, in, of the internationalists to come up with a realistic and politically stain, sustainable program for American engagement left the field open, I think, to isolationism. And in subsequent years, that just deepened. So I think maybe the lesson for those of us today who think about American engagement in the world, think it's necessary, think it prevents much worse evils than the evils that attend it, need to think really hard about what is practical, what is realistic, what makes sense to the average American, and develop programs that that can win the political support that they need so that America remains constructively engaged, but not overcommitted. And now it's time for our final segment, The Big Conversation. Walter, it's been pointed out before that the woke movement in America, which maybe we can say began with Black Lives Matter in 2014 during the Ferguson protests, but which really came to be seen as the or one of the dominant political ideologies in America in the summer of 2020, that maybe wokeness is best understood as one of the country's great awakenings. I, I guess it would be the sixth great, awa- the fifth great awakening. I'm not sure how many we've had. Uh, but one of the great awakenings in American history going back to the mid-18th century. Now, this is kind of a tough idea to wrap your mind around. It would be something like a secularized evangelical Protestant religious revival, if that makes any sense. And it probably doesn't to our listeners quite, which is why you're here, Walter, to make it make sense. So insofar as you buy this idea, what, what are the sociological connections you see between the kind of progressive moral determinism we see in the woke movement and the Puritans and maybe the longer story of American Protestantism. Okay, well, maybe it's more helpful for readers to listeners. Boy, I keep saying readers. I got to get used to this. I'm podcasting now. We'll get there. I'm like in a new media environment. I'm trying to be modern and hip and cool. So listeners, <laughs> um, uh, listeners maybe find it easier to think about this as the great awakening rather than another great awakening. And in fact, the word woke does have a, a religious history. Uh, someone who is woke is someone who is awakened to their state historically of the need for God's grace and redemption. Um, uh, obviously, in the in the great awakening, it's somebody who is woken to the continued prevalence of deep inequalities and injustices in American life. Uh, It is a bit, clearly it's a bit like Puritan movements in the American and British past. I often think of um, uh, Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night, where the steward Malvolio is is a Puritan and is sort of mocked for his Puritanism by all the sort of ribald characters uh, of the play. There's a moment where Sir Toby Belch says, 
Dost thou think that because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? Um, and so, the, you know, the idea that because I have had a great awakening and I now see things differently, the entire world must change now. Uh, injustices have a way of living on. Uh, the world does not reform automatically just because I feel that suddenly it should. Uh, nevertheless, it's interesting in the next generation, those Puritans that Shakespeare and his colleague Ben Johnson were mocking in their place take over the country. And you have Oliver Cromwell. And you do have, in fact, a whole series of kind of crazy Puritan excesses. People talk about the, quote, bare bones parliament, where there was like an MP whose name was, was bare bones. These people took these crazy names. Ben Johnson has tribulation wholesome and zeal of the land busy as two of the names. So sort of crazy social fads connected with this new revelation. And then the generation after the Puritans take over under Oliver Cromwell, you have Charles II and the Merry Monarch, you know, who's uh, at one point, uh, one of his mistresses was driving through London in her carriage, and the mob is shouting, you know, uh, kill the Spanish, kill the Catholic whore, down with the Catholic whore. She steps out of the carriage. She says, good people. She says, I'm the Protestant whore. And so everybody cheers, <laughs> and her carriage moves through the streets. Uh, so, you know, public opinion human nature doesn't change very much. And you've got the righteous and the not so righteous living cheek by jowl, no matter what comes into fashion. But I think what we can say is in the early years of, of the baby boomers adulthood, the 60s and the 70s, we really had a culture of unbridled license. If it feels good, do it was a kind of a motto. Uh, people weren't thinking of People sort of were trying to separate sexuality from ethics, that somehow natural drives, if we just express them naturally, everything would be fine. Now we've obviously moved away from that. And I think, too, that the woke vision correctly notes that passing a bunch of civil rights laws does not end a, a racial problem that is generations deep, bone deep, you could say. And actually, conservatives, some conservatives who argued against the civil rights laws, used to make exactly this point, that, that you won't change American racism by changing a few laws, but change comes from within and is a process of growth and development. Uh, so in some ways, this view of American racism is more realistic than this kind of superficial, ah, we passed two laws and now we can just forget about the whole thing. It's all in the past. So I guess I'd say that both on the kind of sexual gender vision behind Me Too and the, um, and the woke awareness that racism is a is a deep and complex human problem i find myself with a lot of sympathy for that for the movement yet simultaneously it does seem that we get we get some crazy excesses where it's a, an act of hate speech to say that men don't get pregnant for example i think that's that's bare bones parliament level 
of uh, of fanaticism and zealotry sort of writing uh, what is actually a consequential and serious movement for social change. Um, so, you know, do I, in, in American history, we've seen many times this cycle of, in a sense, every generation wants what its parents didn't give it. So if you if your parents are sort of rebel Sir Toby Belch, you know, lying around drunk, take no responsibility, don't care for anything, you get these very sober children, uh, like the daughter in Absolutely Fabulous, if anybody remembers that television show. Um, and then on the other hand, if you're raised by a bunch of straight-laced, boring, sober-minded people, uh, you want to like spread your wings a little bit and rebel. So there's a, this natural cycle, and I think we need to, to look at it there. But the big difference to me between um, woke Puritanism, so to speak, and real, what I think of as very healthy spiritual movements is that is in the attitude toward original sin that um, traditional doctrine most strongly expressed in Christianity, but I think found in other Abrahamic religions, says humanity is made in God's image, and basically our 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 nature is good, but because for reasons that are sort of summarized in the in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, humanity decided basically to thumb its nose at God and go its own way. Our society and our individual selves have fallen into a state of complete chaos, rot, depravity is the is the historic word for it. As Solzhenitsyn wrote, the you know the the line between good and evil doesn't go between one political movement and another movement, but it runs inside every human heart. And traditionally, again, the idea has been that the only way to, to really deal with this is to turn to God, that humanity can't save itself. Uh, it needs somebody, something bigger and better than we are to, to fill this, this hole in our hearts. And I think to some degree, You'll see some people in the in the wokeitarian movement, so to speak, um, sort of saying no. You know that there are the the categories of the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, you know, so if you're if you're from one of the categories that's bad, if you're a straight white cis male, um, there's a kind of a you know you you are original sin. Uh, you are the problem. And other people in different categories on some kind of hierarchy that keeps changing, so I can't follow all the details, are are freed from this. And the only way you can try to redeem yourself, and you can't really redeem yourself, is to become an ally. Uh, this is this is a this is kind of a narrow and bitter vision. It doesn't, I think, do justice to the ways that all of us. Uh, have both good and evil in us. All of us need to turn to something bigger than we are. Um, and yet I, I really, I don't want to fall into the trap of, of just 
saying, oh, these Wokies, you know, they've got nothing, they're all terrible. Because in fact, you know, there's a real point to Me Too. I mean, you read about what was going on and, you know, the, the ways that often people in my generation were abusing positions of power in the absence of traditional sexual ethics to implement that early boomer concept of if it feels good, do it, and that desire is its own justification. When you link that with power, you get something terrible. The reaction is good. And again, racism is not something that is in America's rearview mirror. It is still a factor today. Well, lastly, I just picking up on your idea of you know, kind of where we are in this latest cycle that recurs uh, throughout American history. So, you know, just the last year or two, the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision, the Dobbs decision, San Francisco recalling its school board, school choice legislation proliferating, in, including in blue states. Biden's poll numbers are underwater. Uh, Joe Rogan still seems to be in live and well, although we're hot on his heels here at what really matters. We just need to make up those final 10 million subscriptions. But you get the idea. My, my question is, has wokeness and you know this kind of this latest iteration of this kind of great awakening, has wokeness peaked, you think, at this point? Is the great awakening already or mostly in the past at this point? You know, the the legacy of these profound movements of social change uh, is a complicated thing to think about. Um, you know, did the Great Awakening end when uh, George Whitfield went back to England? I don't think so. It, it continued to change the way Americans thought and felt for, you know, the, certainly the lifetimes of most of those who, who were part of it. And, but what often does happen is that the frenzies and the fanaticism and the sort of, you know, overdoing a good thing, that tends to come at the beginning of a movement. And over time, a kind of a maturity begins to settle in. And it's partly just an effect of age. You know, the Gen Z is very, very much like the boomers. And I'm sorry, this probably sounds to some of our listeners like the world's most hideous insult. But, you know, when the boomers came of age, we thought we were the most secular generation in America's history, the first post-racial generation in American history, the generation that had broken decisively with the, you know, puritanism and the sexual narrowness of our of our parents. Uh, but we also thought we were the generation that was so screwed economically, we were going to be the first generation that didn't that failed to match its parents' living standards. And between the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, we were so critical of traditional American institutions, so suspicious of the government, from the Kennedy assassination to the CIA revelations. So we look at the at Gen Z as boomers, and we we think, ah, you guys are so cute, um, <laughs> you know. You're, you're, yeah, you know. And I realize again, I'm I'm about to be, you know, I won't get canceled because of the things I was saying about wokeness, woke ex extremism. I'm going to get canceled for for being like treating uh, the Gen Z like an old grandpa here. But um, look, it's. 
we were incredibly immature at the beginning. I remember slogans like, don't trust anybody over 30, and these earnest Marxists trying to explain that, well, it's because of the oil, offshore oil in Vietnam. That's why the United States is is fighting the war in Vietnam. It still haven't seen much action in those offshore oil de- uh, deposits, by the way. So... Um, Oh, and you know, oh my goodness, Mao Zedong was a great leader in building a wonderful China. Cuba, Fidel Castro was going to turn Cuba into a paradise, just like Hugo Chavez a few years ago. You know, so look, it's it's not um, we we matured out of a lot of it. Uh, we retained, I think, as a generation, good and bad. A lot of the impressions of our early years have stayed with us. And that's going to happen with Gen Z and with where, where the woke movement has been so strong. But as people mature and age, they get smarter, they become more moderate, experience begins to settle in. You sort of realize, as Hawthorne writes with the scarlet letter, that every utopia, no matter optimistic, soon finds that it needs two institutions, a prison and a graveyard. <laughs> so... Uh, so I think the I think we're going to see a kind of a settling in of the great awakening rather than sort of a, a you know a, a collapse or dissolution. All right, that's it for the big conversation. Let's wrap up with the tip of the week. Seeing as you're fresh off your Croatian adventure, Walter, give us your number one Balkan travel tip. Which country, city, site experience should be number one on everyone's bucket list? And all of our listeners' bucket lists include a visit to the Balkans, I I feel sure. I am absolutely sure that everybody here is just trying to save up their frequent flyer points to to get that uh, flight to the Balkans. (laughs) Look, I... uh, you know, the last time I went to Croatia was 1990, and they were everybody was getting ready for a civil war, and you used to have to listen on the radio in the morning. I was trying to drive through the country, have to listen on the radio to reports about where the snipers were, and there were snipers on Highway 17, so you just you know so you could find another route, um, and so I didn't really think of Croatia as a tourist destination for many years. But having been there and this time saw it from the sea, which really shows it to its best advantage, um, go. There's really no, the food is delicious, the people are friendly, the tourist infrastructure is fine, nature is gorgeous, there are hundreds of islands, the Adriatic is one of the most beautiful bodies of water on the planet. Uh, get there as quickly as you can. That's my travel tip. That's it for this week. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 